Thank you, worship team. We don't applaud because we're fans of the worship team, and we don't applaud because we're trying to blow up their heads. Our applause is simply gratitude. We're grateful for the time that they spent uh, preparing this morning, this week, and the time that they gave. They're usually here practicing while most of us are still sleeping on Sunday morning. So thank you very much, worship team. We're very grateful. Good morning and welcome to Revelation Rock. It's good to see everybody this morning. Everybody having a good day so far? It's not snowing. It's not 20 degrees. It's not even 25 degrees. Well, it might be. It's starting to, but it's warming up is what I'm getting at. It was cold. It was windy. It was nasty. And now it's starting to warm up our first, or I guess it's about the third fall spring so far. So we've got a few more to go. This is Ohio. If you don't like the weather, just wait five minutes. It'll change soon. Ah, welcome to our family room. This is a, uh, not just a name for this place, the family room, but we actually function like that. There's things we discuss here that are, maybe don't come out right sometimes. There's things that uh, we look at that are a little uncomfortable sometimes. There's great things we talk about. There's difficult things we talk about. We're going to continue talking about uh, what we discussed last week, which isn't super difficult, but it depend, I, I, I kind of want to couch what we're sharing, uh, that it's not a pressure-filled message in that it is trying to pigeonhole people into a spot, trying to make you leave with a feeling like, I'm not quite good enough, I need to fix this in my life. Now, if the Holy Spirit guides and directs you and takes your hand and leads you, then by all means, I want you to feel free to go as the Holy Spirit leads you. Uh, but the intention of this teaching, what I believe the Holy Spirit quickened into my heart to share about staying in our lane is not one that's supposed to leave us walking out feeling like, ah, oh, I'm just, I'm a terrible person. I'm comparing myself all the time. But it is supposed to, my idea is, you know, the word of God is a light to our feet and a lamp before our path. So as we, when you shine the light in front of you, you can see, hey, there's a path. There is no path in front of me or there's the direction I should be walking this is the title of the teaching. I have two different titles. You can call it whatever you want. And Jody, I defer to you on whatever you decide at the end of the teaching to call it. It either is going to be our lane part two, which last week was just staying in our lane, or what's it to you? You follow me. We started last week looking at this concept of comparing ourselves among ourselves and how when we look at Scripture, we're not looking for just, and we've, we've been talking about this for years, but we're going to continue talking about it as long as we're gathering, to look at Scripture in context, not just grab a few verses here and there that make a point that we're looking to make, and then we just apply that and move on as a doctrine. That's not how we develop doctrine. We look at books as a whole. We look at the whole idea that we look at the authorship. We look at who the letter or the book was written to. Because we want to see Jesus and we want to see what the author was trying to communicate. We look at Scripture, we're trying to grow and learning to look at Scripture in context. And when we see some stuff, some instructions that Jesus gave his disciples in John chapter 21, we see Jesus and Peter. We looked at this last week, a little bit of review, and then we're going to get into, we're going to, a lot of this may feel like review. We're going to review and kind of finish, hopefully, most of what we were looking at with this comparison 
In John chapter 21, we, we saw Jesus and Peter reconnecting following Peter's denial of knowing Jesus. Jesus asked Peter the now famous questions, Peter, do you love me? To which Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. And then he says, well, then feed my sheep. And he does this three times, kind of a wink, a not so subtle, not so thinly veiled wink back to Peter's three denials of knowing Jesus. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Then feed my sheep. And then we see after that, that Jesus explains to Peter that his death may not be super pleasant, and Peter gets right back into comparison. Immediately, we talked about this last week, the, the speed at which Peter went from, I'm so glad to be back in fellowship with Jesus, to, hey, what about that guy over there? The self-centeredness that Peter still dealt with, where it's, well, what, how do I compare to that guy looking at John? And Jesus Jesus' reply, it could be, it really should be the mantra of the church today. Jesus replies, what if he never dies? What's that to you? What if he doesn't die until I come back? Thousands, potentially thousands of years he lives. What's that to you? You follow me. And I love that. that really, that phrase has been going around and around and up and down. And every day I have meditated on that this past week and the week before What's it to you? You follow me. What's it to you? You follow me. And I look at my friends, I look at my family, I look at people in our community, and I can get into looking at them and their lives, and I hear the Lord's whisper, what's it to you? You follow me. But Lord, like they got all this stuff going for them in their lives, and, and I don't have that stuff going for me. What's it to you? You follow me. It's this all-clarifying statement that Jesus lays out to Peter, and many of you who have known me for any length of time know that Peter is my spirit animal in, in Scripture. I read through and I see, and my, my goal, so you might hear that and think, oh, wow, he's got high aspirations. Peter denied knowing Jesus. No, I'm going for old Peter. You, if you make it to First and Second Peter, you get a glimpse of old Peter. That's where I'm headed. I'm just not there yet. I have not arrived, but I have left. I'm headed that direction. But I see this you know, Peter's looking around, it's like, what about that guy? And we can do the same thing, and that's kind of what we looked at a little bit last week, that Christians, we can get wrapped around the axle of comparison. We can look at other people. Anybody ever done that, look at comparing? We talked about a lot of things about comparison last week, but everybody, anybody ever get into comparing sins? That's the one thing we didn't really talk about last week, where it's like, well, my sin is definitely worse than their sin. Or well, my sin might not be great, but have you seen what so-and-so is doing? This 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, we see Paul instruct the church at Corinth that measuring yourselves by yourselves, you are not wise. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they Measuring themselves by themselves, comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. How many of you know this is the first reference that I have, I, I shouldn't say this because I haven't really looked at historical references, but right here we see the theory of relativity on display. This is, as, it, this is the theory, this is relativism right here. But they, measuring themselves by themselves. What is the measuring stick? If it's each other, it's always changing. It's just relative. How I... And you know, the, 
Paul says this is not wise. But I see this. This is the environment where theories of relativity apply well. The standard is just as I relate to whoever is standing next to me. This principle is where nearly everyone ends up with the law of Moses where it is taught improperly. Now, we're going we're gonna to look at a few statements here. The, this principle, this principle of measuring ourselves by ourselves. Now, Paul says it is not wise. Clearly, like, this isn't an instruction. Paul's like, so if you guys want to just get to measuring yourselves among yourselves, you'll know who's the only thing that measuring ourselves among ourselves establishes is within this room or within whoever your group of measurements are, who's the tallest, who's the shortest. It's not the tallest person ever. We could all line up tallest to shortest in this whole room and we could say, wow, maybe Trey or maybe Tom is the tallest person. It's like, yeah, but he's just the tallest person here. It's not, that's not really the standard. The standard is just whoever's here. Well, we could say, well, Maybe Rip is the shortest person. Well, he's just the shortest person here. There's definitely short. He was shorter like yesterday. There's shorter people. It's just he's the shortest one here. That's a very, very, very vague and ultimately pointless standard. We're just measuring just amongst ourselves. It's unwise. And like I said, this principle is where nearly everyone ends up when the law of Moses with the law of Moses when it's taught improperly. Because at first glance, everybody familiar with the law of Moses? It's not just the Ten Commandments, it's the entire Old Covenant law. Now that law is unkeepable. And when we, but at first glance, somebody tells you, you know, you should try and keep the Ten, the famous Ten. Well, we keep the law of Moses, we'll we'll try. At, At first glance, we attempt to keep it. Foolishly thinking that we're able to. When we fail, which we all do pretty directly, about the time we get about the sixth commandment, we've all failed. We'll try again. You know, the 11th commandment, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. So, you know, you just, just try. Now, we all know, if you, and Paul explains, the law, you, it's a composite whole. You fail one time in your entire existence, you're toast by that law. But, you know, well, we'll try again because I'm sure there's at least one chance to try again. After failing several times, though, we begin to do what? This is like, this is across the board humanity, and in Christianity when we're looking at the law. After failing several times, we begin to look around. You go to the law. If I preach the law, and I preach it as your job to keep, at first, you're like, I'm going to try. I'm going to take this instruction, have no other guys before me, and buddy, I'm going to bring it into Monday, and I'm going to bring it into Tuesday, and I'm going to bring it into Wednesday I failed. Well, I'm going to try again, and you do that for a couple of weeks. About the second Monday in, it's like, I can't do this. And so instead of going back to the Word, and instead of really trying hard again, I start looking around. Oh, my wife's not keeping the law either. I'm probably doing better than she is. How is everyone around me doing with this law thing? And then we often, and this is one of my favorite things that we do as Christians, we often, in a moment of just giving up, our hands are in the air, it's like, you know what? Instead of saying we need a Savior, 
which is what the law is designed to bring us to, the end of ourselves, a schoolmaster to instruct us that absolutely every person is guilty under the law. Instead of reaching out for a savior, we end up looking at random Old Testament saints and off-cuff applying this doctrine of relativity between us and them. Now, I, you might be like, what's he talking about? Well, I'm not perfect, but I guess looking at David, I should be fine. That's like my favorite one, because David, I mean, he pretty much the gamut of mistakes he made. He made the worst ones. He made the mistakes that get you kicked out of churches. He made the mistakes that get you kicked out of office. He made the mistakes that get you fired. He made all those mistakes, and then the Bible's like, well, if, as a, David was a man after God's own heart. It's like, I haven't done everything he did. And we just rant. Now, can, you, can anyone find me any scripture that says, compare yourself to David And as long as you haven't done the letter of everything that he did, you should be fine. Does any of us want to cross into eternity with that? Like, you know, I don't know. I I guess compared to David, I ought to be all right. I'm not down on anybody because I've run this same scenario. It just is entertaining to me. We have no scripture where David is set up high as this is who we should try to follow, everybody. But we all do it. I've heard many people in here, we've had this conversation. I'm not throwing stones at anybody. I'm just like, let's look at this a little deeper because this is one of the applications of comparison. It's not just here. It's when we compare ourselves into the word of God and we say, how am I doing if David was the standard? Well, that would only matter if David was the standard. Well, and somebody said, just within the last week, I had this conversation. Somebody's like, well, I look at like, you know, Noah, he was a drunk. And, you know, I'm not a drunk. It's like, okay, well, that's good. Uh, Unfortunately, there's not a New Testament where Noah's the standard and the only goal is to not be a drunk. You can be right with God if you're not a drunk like Noah. Not a verse. Doesn't exist. Noah wasn't the standard. Abraham wasn't the standard. Moses was not the standard. The law of Moses was the standard, and the standard ultimately points us to our need for a savior, not our need for someone to compare ourselves to. The takeaway when the law is taught well is that there is no hope. Well, that's... Not an entirely optimistic statement, but it is. When the law of Moses is taught well, we walk away from the law saying there is no hope. On our own church, there is no hope. Because we don't cross into eternity, we don't approach the throne of grace, unmerited, unearned favor, and say, Lord, look, I understand, I've made some mistakes, and you might know of some that I forgot about, but... Remember David? That is not how this goes. When the law is taught well, our takeaway is there is no hope. We need a Savior. Now we know on the other side, we have a Savior. King Jesus is our Savior. He is the ultimate. This is the gospel, church. The gospel is not that you're going to hell, but that is a prerequisite for needing the gospel. Kind of like using a flotation device 
For you to actually, you could carry one around, but to actually need it, you must first be drowning. And, and we talked about this in depth a few months ago, but you not only must be drowning, you must know you're drowning. You gotta know, I am drowning, because otherwise you're never gonna reach for that buoy. This is, we've gotten off topic slightly. We take away from the law when it's taught, well, there's no hope. We need a savior to save us. Just like the rich young ruler If the law is taught well, which is what Jesus did to the rich young ruler, there will always be one thing we lack. That's how you get to the end of yourself. You know, the first time somebody says, you know what, if you try hard, you know, Trey and I were talking just a little bit before service, and he mentioned a sports thing to me. Just a sports, like he knows that I'm not a sports guy, so he had to kind of paint a little picture for me. But I think, you know, if anyone's ever been coached, and contrary to popular belief, I did play sports. It's just been a long, long time, and it wasn't ever really my thing. But I remember coaches saying, you know, you should try this. I played soccer. You should try this particular shot. Practice it. You missed the first 10 times. What do you do? Should we quit? No. Try again. So this mentality exists in this life, and it's not bad where you try, try again. But the law is designed so effectively that you can try, try again for years. And if the law is taught well, it will ultimately bring you to the same point. I need a savior. You know, this leads us to Jesus, not to comparison. When the law is taught in an unwise fashion, we end up comparing ourselves. And I've heard Lots of good preachers, good people, good meaning people preach that leave us with us in a state of comparison where we go to the word of God, we read an Old Testament story, we either insert ourselves in the story or compare ourselves with someone character in it. And this is unwise because it's still comparing ourselves among ourselves. They might not be living here with us, but they're not the ultimate standard. When we read scripture, we need to look for Jesus and then also we find instruction for our lives. We don't jump in the story. Where am I at in this story? The gospel is the ultimate answer to the law being taught well, which is why we get to the gospel after books and books and books of law. We get to the gospel. Jesus comes. Now, all of those books of the law are a prophetic foreshadowing of the coming Messiah, Romans chapter 1 through Romans 3 lays out this case. I'm not going to read all of that for us today, but I want you guys, if you got time and you're wondering about this, read Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2, and Romans chapter 3, and it will lay out the case. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All means all, all the time. All have sinned. That's, Paul makes a very eloquent case in Romans one two, and three. This is for everybody. Everybody is made guilty under the law if it's taught well. Everyone needs a savior. The letters we're going to look into a little bit this morning, the letter to the Galatians and the letters to the church at Corinth. These are some pretty important letters from which these two letters we see much clearer into the new covenant in which we are partakers. Ironically, These are two of the furthest off-base churches that we see letters written to. They're the furthest off. These aren't the stellar churches. It's not like, the church in Corinth, you guys are knocking it out of the park. In fact, the opposite is true. You read 1 Corinthians, it's like, it is like 
I, I mean, it is a relative yard sale of things there. And not like a good yard sale where there's lots of deals. But like, anybody ever go to like rummage auctions or rummage sales? Like, I go, I like farm auctions. And, and at the end of a farm auction, there's always a couple of hay wagons. And on these hay wagons is everything. Hidden in there is something good. But I mean, it's like you can buy a box of chip clips and the next box may have a snap-on ratchet in it. Like a dollar for the chip clips and a dollar for the box. Well, that ratchet was a good deal, but you had to buy the chip clips. Nobody wants the chip. And most of the chip clips are also broken and the springs are rusty. And then there's, a, you, know, you guys have been to these. This is what this church at Corinth looked like. It was just like, there's like a box of Tupperware lids. There's no bases. These Tupperware lids are from 30 years ago. Who wants these? Who put them in a box? That's what Paul got to when he got to Corinth. It's like, you guys are doing what? You th- in fact, I like that, uh, ironically, these are two of the furthest off-base churches we see. Oh, foolish Galatians. Not super high praise to the church at Galatia. And 1 Corinthians gets us the, this is my personal favorite, not even named among the Gentiles, comment from Paul. You guys are so far off at Corinth. You have got chip clips beside the sockets on the wagon out front. You are doing sexual, you are okay with the sexual sin that is not even named among the Gentiles, the people that say there is no God or that it's some Greek God. You're so far off. It was just everywhere. They were all over the board. Does this make sense? This is the kind of letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. But these two letters, and I love this, I love this, these two letters because of their respective messes that they were both into, gave us some of the most clear instruction on living with each other as believers. You see, the churches that were doing everything great, they got letters from Paul, letters from Timothy, letters, whoever was sending, and we don't, you know, we don't have any of Timothy's letters, but you know he wrote some to somebody, and they would have sounded something like this. Oh, church at Pettisville, you guys are doing great, keep it up, I can't believe all the wonderful things I heard. I've heard about these cool miracles. You guys are taking care of each other. Keep up the good work. Well, for us today, 2,000 years later, what instruction can we really learn from that? They did a good job, but we don't know what they did. You see this, church? Like, if, if good job is all the letters were to say, it'd be very difficult for us to draw much many boundaries, many guidelines out of them. But since their churches were such a yard sale, Paul's like, okay, this is how we're gonna go forward with communion. This is how we're gonna go forward with church order. This is how we're gonna pray for each other. This is, and he gives us all these instructions. Thank Jesus for these churches. He comes into the church at Galatia and he writes this absolute out-of-the-park essay on why we're not getting back into the law. How many of you know that when he wrote that, he did not know that 2023 was coming where the church is very confused about what covenant we're all supposed to be operating in? All he knew was the church at Galatia was. Thank heavens that the Holy Spirit quickened in him to write these letters to these way messed up churches so that today we can look at their letters and we can see clearly how to behave with one another. I think about this when you read through uh, 
when you read through both of these letters, we see things, and it's like, you know, the, the sexual misconduct one to the church at Corinth. You know, he, Paul's shocked. He's like, I can't believe this is reported among you. Like, this is a church. You guys were founded on the gospel. How did you end up here? And I thought, I thought as I was going over this, anybody ever see any foolish warning labels today? And you know that these warning labels are on stuff because somebody tried it. You know, the don't hold the chainsaw by the wrong end. And then the, the graphic for it is like stub hands with fingers going every which way. And like, really, who tried that? Somebody did because there's a label for that. The one on the, uh, our little stroller says, don't fold up with child inside. It's just like this, somebody did that. Somebody folded the thing up, and it's like, that's like a car seat now, and they're all wrapped up in a cocoon. They folded the thing up and put it in the car. Well, you can't do that. So they put a warning label on it. This is the mindset, and I just, there's a little, a little smile for us today. When we read through the letter to the church at Corinth, a lot of times I've heard pastors read and preach out of 1 Corinthians, and it's like ball bat preaching. You know, this, let this not be named among you, which is great instruction. We shouldn't get twisted up in this, but we can smile a little bit in that they were trying this. They thought this was a good idea, and they went so far as to advertise, this is how we're going to choose to live. It's like you got to make a warning. Paul had to make a warning label for that kind of misbehavior. It, I smiled when I read that. While the behaviors and the belief systems that were being corrected were definitely wrong, we should avoid participating in them. We are beneficiaries today of a, the clear, concise letters Paul wrote to them to instruct them moving forward. Paul was very aware that these two groups and generations to follow were in need of some clear instruction regarding living together in unity. 1 Corinthians, you know, so often, and this might, this, I hope this morning blesses somebody. It's, this is some discussion about letters. We're looking, we're going to look at some more scripture uh, as we continue on. But this is some discussion about these letters. I hope you guys are okay with that this morning. But, you know, 1 Corinthians, it gives us a bunch of chapters. Now, when it was written, it wasn't written in chapter verse, was it? It was written as a letter. Does anyone put verses in their letters? I don't put verses in my letters. I just write. You know, do we, most people don't even use punctuation at all when they're texting. It's just like if one, and you got to imagine, I think there's some punctuation here somewhere. And you ever read those, seen those memes where it's like punctuation is really important? It's, those are pretty entertaining. And, but these weren't written as chapters. We've divided them up. They've been divided into chapters. They've been divided into verses, which is handy for us to reference them, isn't it? It's nice to be able to say, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2 says. The downfall is it allows us to take them out as a complete little unit and do whatever we may with them, which is dangerous because it gives us the opportunity to say, we're going to take 1 Corinthians 13 and we're going to assign wedding chapter to that, only read it at weddings, and that's really the only use for that kind of ripping it out of the context where it was actually written. The paragraphs above and below are ultimate. You know, when we write a letter today, it's important. The first part is really important. The part that says, dear so-and-so. It matters. And this is what all is going on in my life. This is what I'm thinking about in your life. And so, paragraph three. 
it would be dangerous for us to take in our communication amongst ourselves to take that paragraph three out and we're going to say this is just a standalone thing. It's equally dangerous to do that in the word of God. It's actually more dangerous because we're talking about eternity and the gospel, how we're supposed to live as believers. But I love that, that 1 Corinthians gives us all these various chapters. You know, we see instruction given in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We see instruction given in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And then in the middle of it is this chapter 13, this love that is supposed to bind us all together. It's tucked in between verses, or chapters 12 and 14. Paul laying out all of our differences in, ver, in chapter 12 and how to work together with them instead of comparing our differences and operating in division. He comes back, he circles back around, and this is what we looked at last week, in the next letter to the church at Corinth, and he says, don't compare yourselves among yourselves. Obviously, this was still going on. There was still some comparison among themselves. But we're supposed to learn to work together. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. Give me a second, I'll get there. I've had plenty of time to get there, but I've been speaking. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we see in verse 4, there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. Verse 5, there are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. You see, a lot of times we take, you hear Preachers take 1 Corinthians 12 and they say, we're going to teach on spiritual gifts. Well, while that's okay, it's important to note, there was, this was a corrective letter. He was laying out some instruction for us. And also, we cannot, we dare not preach 1 Corinthians 13, or 12 without following it with 13. Do you see how this, because you can end up all wrapped up in the manifestation of the Spirit given to each one for the profit of all, and we can end up in these spiritual gifts and never make it that it's actually about unity and love. You see, comparison, we talked about this last week, comparing ourselves among ourselves, measuring ourselves by ourselves, it always leads to division. Which if you, if you know anything about the way the enemy hunts, we've talked about this many, many times, that the enemy roams about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Well, a lion roars, the antelope run. You know as well as I do, the lion doesn't eat the whole herd. Who's the lion eat? The slowest one. Whoever he can get off by himself. As believers, understand, church, the enemy is seeking to divide us. This natural existence is seeking to divide us. And by hook or by crook, his desire is for us to be enemies or to be divided. Just little schisms, just a little separation a little, I like, the, I like the picture of a fault line. You know, you, you get the, we're in the days in our house where we have like the pages that you can tear out. How do you know where to tear? You look for the perforation. That's what the, if the enemy, comparison breeds perforation in us. There is easy, we're easily torn apart. When I get to measuring myself against Todd, you guys all know that Todd Rivenoff farms and I farm. Some people we call, we, we kind of, we compete with who can have the smallest fields, the most uniquely placed all throughout the county. But if I get into comparison, I can look at Todd and say, well, Todd's got 11 combines and I only have one. Now, some would say, what's wrong with Todd, Morgan? I'm not asking. But some would say, well, what's wrong with you? Why don't you have 11 combines? Why don't you? That's how I feel. I should get more. And I can get into comparison. Now, oh, Todd and I are great friends. But just that little bit of comparison, I can, I can begin 
it starts out with a little resentment, don't it? It's not big. It's not, I don't, I don't dislike him. It's just, I was just a little like, I feel a little slighted. It's like he's got, and then he's probably, he might have 12 by now. I haven't talked to him in a couple weeks. But that little, that little bit of perforation. Now, until something comes along to rend us asunder, it's just a perforation. It's just this line, it's just like a schism. It's just a little bit, I'm not sure. Kind of really bugs me that he's got more combat. It's comparison. Comparison breeds perforation and schisms. And it, and it disables us from being able to operate as one. Jesus told his disciples the night before he left in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, he said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this one thing, verse 35, you see right there in the beginning, by this, our love for one another that is like Jesus, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That love for one another is exactly what Paul's explaining in detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is coming out of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, talking about, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about all these different spiritual gifts. Because you know, if we, if we were to have a Sunday and we're talking about spiritual gifts, and it's like, well, Trey's got the gift of proclaiming, Jerry's got the gift of proclaiming, Tom's got the gift of proclaiming. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, well I don't have that gift. Are they more valuable than me? Like, I don't know, where, where does that fit? And we can, those little perforation lines, schism can begin to happen in the body. And what Paul's saying is, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he's like, no, 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 no. All of these gifts, they all fit together. They're all part of one body. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, just keep reading, love, God's kind of love, this agape love goes over all of this. It seals everybody together. Poured out, the Holy Spirit gave you all gifts, but you're all part of one body. You see this unity. Paul's trying to get at unity. I skipped ahead of my notes. Now I have to find where I was. It's easier with pages. I might have to go back to paper. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4, talks about the diversities of gifts, one spirit. Verse 31 of chapter 12 reads, Earnestly desire the best gifts, yet I show you a more excellent way. Don't get wrapped up in your different, different gifts. These gifts, church, they're important. I don't ever want to take away from the spiritual gifts that are laid, that Paul explains to us, okay? Don't anybody hear that we're taking away from that. But what we're doing is we're saying, over top of all of that is this 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. This agape, this unmerited, unearned, you can't, if you don't earn the love that's given, it's just freely given. You can't lose it because it was just freely given. This many as one is what leads us and sets the stage for 1 Corinthians 13, highlighting God's kind of love, which according to Peter, old Peter, covers a multitude of sins. Is this making any sense, church? This unity is supposed to be it's not to take away from our uniqueness, our differences, our giftings. So I look across this body, everybody's got so, we have so many different gifts. I don't ever want to take away from those. In fact, I want to encourage each of you in those giftings. But with those giftings, 
Understand that we're not segregating and separating and drawing all these lines of separation. We're actually bringing our parts together, just like, and I love the picture that uh, I've shared this with a few people, and some of you, if you've heard this, you get to hear it again. But I think about the body, you know, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12, we just looked at a little bit, uh, how we're all parts of one body. And I like the picture, you know, my kids are at the little, little toys. We got the little one who can't play with the little toys. So there's a constant war in our home of where are the little toys because he's going to put them in his mouth. And the big kids like the little toys, the little kids like the big toys, whatever. So we leave, we try to leave at least 30% of our small toys out on the floor every night. This is just across the board. Now, some nights we do better and we get 75% out, but at least 30% because if it looks sort of clean in the room, dad won't turn the light on when he walks through. And little toys wreak havoc on dad's feet. And I, I love the picture that when you're walking through in the middle of the night going up to the kid's room and you step on a Lego, it hurts like Sam Hill. What do I do? I love this, this picture has been resonating in my mind as this is how this body is supposed to function, both here and also the big church around. That when I step on something, the first thing I do is I take both my hands, which have no ability to take the pain away whatsoever, and I hold my foot and I hop, usually on the Lego again, but I hold my foot with my hands and I just hold it. And you're like, well, that seems dumb. Yes, but that's what you would do. If I were to blindfold you and lay a few Legos out, walk you across them, you'd all do the same thing. Or you might, the first couple times you do it, it you gotta get some, you gotta be seasoned to stay standing. A lot of times it just takes you right out. But even if you're laying on the floor writhing, you're still holding your foot. That's a picture of the body, church. What, you know what I don't do? I don't step on a Lego and then take my hands and start smacking my feet. I'm gonna punish my feet. No, I hold them. I hold my foot. Ah, I can't fix anything with my hands. I can't take that little indentation that looks just like the Lego out of the bottom of my foot. I just hold it. My hands are, you know what my hands are communicating to my foot in that moment? This really hurts. I'll be right here. I hold you. Can't fix anything. We can't always fix the things that are wrong. As we grow in functioning as the body, and this body is doing a really good job of this, church, we experienced some of that this past summer, that exact same stuff. That's how we're to function as a body. My hands can't do anything about it. They can't always fix everything that's wrong with my foot. If I stub my toe, I love, I, Terry and I were talking about this a couple weeks ago, when you're driving a nail and you smash your thumb, it's like you don't have to teach your mouth what to say and you don't have to teach your other hand what to do. You take a hold of it and you hold on to your thumb. Same exact thing. I can't do anything. You know holding your thumb doesn't make the pain go away. You're still going to get a blood blister. It's still going to hurt, all that. But your hand is just like, I'm going to be there for you. This is a picture of a, of a well-functioning body that when somebody smashes their proverbial thumb, when somebody steps on a Lego in their living room, metaphorically speaking, that we just rush to them to be there. We say, whatever my giftings are, I'm going to give you what I have. Not, well, my gifting, my gifting kept me from stepping on the Legos. No, my hands, my hands just reach down and hold my foot. 
Now, we got a couple more. Wow, today it went quick. Does everybody have a couple more minutes? We, got, we never made it to Galatians. We're going to look at Galatians real, real quick. Is everybody, we're gonna, is everybody okay with this? If you got to go, if you got somewhere you got to be, you're welcome to go. We, but we're just going to roll through this real, real quick. So Galatians is a letter to a church who got twisted up mixing covenants like mixed drinks. They can, confuse covenants also lead to comparisons. We talked about this a little bit with when you get into the Mosaic Covenant and it's taught wrong, and then you start, what, what we have going on today is the same thing that a lot of the church at Galatia was experiencing in that there was, they were teaching salvation by grace through faith, and we got our other foot firmly planted in the Mosaic Covenant where, well, we got to do some circumcision, we got to keep feasts, we got to keep Sabbath days, we got to keep moons and the festivals and all this stuff, and it became very confusing. In fact, the gospel of Jesus Christ became cheap. It was cheapened to the cost of, well, you got to do this too. Now, we know the blood of Jesus is worth more than our, our behavior can't ever pay for it. Confused covenants lead to comparisons, which can, also ca- which can ultimately cause us, as Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, verse 15, to bite, devour, and consume one another. For Galatians chapter 5 Verse 13, 14, 15 says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty or freedom. Only don't use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, here we are, we're back to love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, agape love. Through love, serve one another. This is such a great, we should have just read this verse we could have left 30 minutes ago. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 15, but... Beware, if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. He goes on to talk about walking in the Spirit. When you walk in the Spirit, it is the antithesis of biting and devouring and consuming one another. The more we are truly led by the Spirit, the less threatened we will feel and the less threatening we will come across. You see, he goes through uh, verse 16 on, he talks about walking in the spirit. You should not fill the lust of the flesh. The flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you're led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. And he goes through the works of the flesh. Get down to verse 22. And the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. You read verse 22 and 23, we see there's not much room for comparison, is there? Read that again. The fruit of the Spirit is love, is joy, peace, long-suffering or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. How well do you think comparison is going to live in that environment? It'll starve itself to death. When we walk around in the fruit of the Spirit, the works of the flesh, which if you read through the works of the flesh, we're not going to read through all of them, but it says they're evident, they're adultery, fornication, uncleanness. All of those, they reek of comparison. The works of the flesh, they just reek of it. You ever smelled, you ever been like a, I went fishing one time years ago on Lake Erie, and you get into the docks, it's like, what are we going to do with all these fish that the guy that owns the boat that we paid a bunch of money actually did the work and caught? 
What are we going to do with these fish? We're going to take them to this place and we're going to pay them a bunch of money and they're going to cut them all up and fillet them and everything so that we can eat them. Now, you get from here to the back of the building from a fish cleaning outfit and you can smell them, can't you? You can smell them a mile away. That's how the works of the flesh are. Comparison, you can smell them a mile away. How does how do each of these things, and I'm going to let you guys read, read through these on your own, but in Galatians 5, the works of the flesh, they're evident. Hatred, contention, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, those are all birthed in a place of comparison. That all comes out of comparison. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Verse 26 goes on, let us not be, become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. Obviously, the works of the flesh are rooted in comparison. The fruit of the Spirit are quite obviously where comparison and contention goes to die. Just a side note on this, but I do want to make it. <clears throat> you ever notice in this passage of Scripture that the flesh side of the game is works. Paul didn't say the fruit of the flesh, did he? He said the works of the flesh. There's effort in work, isn't there? But then he didn't say the works of the Spirit in verse 22. He said the fruit of the Spirit. Flesh is always working, and the Spirit is always bearing fruit. That's a free little nugget, but I want you to meditate on this, that this week as you go from this place, that as you're meditating on the Spirit, as you're being led by the Spirit, as the fruit of the Spirit is growing in your life, it's not going to be an efforts match. The flesh works. It labors, it works, it strives. And the works of the flesh are evident. But the fruit of the Spirit, that which the Spirit brings about, just like an apple tree, it just does. Apple trees just does. That's how the fruit of the Spirit operates. As we wrap up this morning, we looked at this a little bit earlier, but Jesus, Jesus gave clarity to his disciples the night before he left about this. And then he circles back around to it, and we talked about it last week in John chapter 21, reminds Peter, what's it to you? You just follow me. In John 13, 34 through 35, we read it earlier, but a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus' kind of love for one another, that you also love one another. By this, this is the earmark, all will know that you are my disciples. Verse, or chapter 15, verse 11 through 13, he says, These things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you, that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, than to lay one's life down for his friends. The kind of love laid out for us in 1 Corinthians is what Jesus calls his disciples to in John 13 and 15. Agape love, unconditional love. It will always cool dissension and heal broken relationships. As the Lord leads us, if you're being led by the Spirit, he's always going to lead you in that unconditional love. He's always going to lead us into agape love for one another. That's his earmark. That's his trademark. That's the thing where we know, I know all the world will know that you are his disciple by our love for one another, by our agape love for one another.
this love in the presence of 1 Corinthians 13 love. Comparison can't survive. In the presence of the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23, comparison can't survive. In the presence of Jesus Christ in this family room right now, comparison can't survive. We're going to choose to operate in agape love. We're going to show unconditional love. And unconditional love is one of the hardest things because when we're wronged, we still have to unconditionally love. That's a choice. It's a, it's a decision. And as the Holy Spirit leads us in it, it becomes easier and easier. It becomes a, just like the apple thing. It just becomes fruit. I look across this room, I see so many of you walking in this. I've exp- we have experienced it in our home. I've seen it as you guys interact with one another. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 13, and then we're going to close with a declaration. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I've become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecies, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains. There's a lot in that verse, church. But I have not love, I'm nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up, does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. God's kind of love, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. God's kind of love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they will fail. Where there are tongues, they will cease. Where there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. When I became a man, I put away these childish things. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. Now abide these three, faith, hope, and agape love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The over everything, the one that holds it all together is the love of God. It's God's kind of love. And as it is shed abroad into our hearts, it will flow from us. This isn't something we try to earn. This isn't a list of things. 1 Corinthians 13 isn't a thing that you put on a post-it note on your fridge and try to do. Church, it's something you receive. It is something we received in the person of Jesus Christ. The gift of salvation is the ultimate example of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It is what 1 Corinthians 13 is all about. And you and I will be hopeless to love that way until we receive it from Jesus. And I'm telling you, when we get to the point where you're loving people that way, it's natural, it's not effort. It just, you find yourself doing it. 
It just happens because we, what we receive out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The things that pour into us ultimately are what go out from us. If you would, join me in standing this morning. I'd like to close us with a declaration and a prayer. Here at Revelation Rock, we declare unity over this body. That we continue to see each other as parts of the greater whole. We are thankful for the simplicity of the gospel and we stand today with boldness because of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, confident of his acceptable sacrifice, certain that the curse of sin has been broken by the cross and the hope of eternity with Jesus realized in the person of Jesus Christ and not by our own efforts. With this reality, we can go into this next week with courage. Not that our tomorrow is guaranteed or that this world is fixed yet, but because of a greater reality found in Christ. We declare with the Apostle John that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Bow with me if you would. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity we had to open your word this morning and really to discuss it, to discuss some backstory, some principles. Father, I just pray that each person here this morning uh, that heard anything that, that quickened in their heart would take these chapters that we've looked at, these books that we've looked at, and go home and research them. Let the Holy Spirit blow on them fresh and anew, breathe on them, and that they would come to life in them, in their hearts. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are leading us and guiding us into all truth. Thank you that you have revealed to us the person of Jesus, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love. We just pray that as that love becomes a reality in our hearts, it would begin to flow from us. Thank you for each person that's here. I pray a blessing over them as we go from this place, as well as a blessing over each person that is not able to join us this morning. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You guys have a